welcome to the Resolving Violence podcast, created to deliver current Canadian prairie-based research on violence and abuse to service providers, people with lived experience, and the general public. And Jordan. And if you'd like to learn more about factors that influence violence and the ways you can address them, let's get started. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. I'm so happy to have you join me today to talk about your research. So we're going to be talking about your research on the Ontario Domestic Assault Risk Assessment. Okay, so can you start off by just explaining what the Ontario Domestic Assault Risk Assessment is, who's using it, what are the items, and why is it important? So there's 13 items on the ODERA. The first is whether the offender has a history of relationship violence whether they have a history of general violence, whether they have a correctional sentence of 30 plus days, so 30 days or more, not necessarily for violence, but just in general, whether they have breached any release orders. So if they've been released by a judge on a probation order or a recognizance, did they breach any of the conditions that they were released on? For example, no contact a victim or no alcohol, that type of thing. If the index offense had any threats towards the victim involved, if the index offense had any unlawful confinement involved, if the victim is fearful of a reoccurrence, if there's two or more children within the home, if the victim has a biological child that is not the offender's child, if there's a history of violence perpetrated by the offender outside of the home, if there's a history of substance abuse, if in the index offense, the victim is pregnant, or if the victim has barriers towards support. So for example, they live rurally, or they don't have access to a telephone, or that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and you were looking at the predictive properties of this assessment tool. Can you talk about what gap you were addressing in your study? The ODARE has been tested to see if it's predictive for not only IPA, so intimate partner abuse, recidivism, but also general violence, recidivism, and just recidivism in general. It's also been tested in a female population. So as the females being the perpetrators against either female or male partners, but it has never been tested against a non-white population as far as we knew when we started this project. And given that Northern Saskatchewan has the highest rates of IPA in the country and Indigenous people are overrepresented in our justice system as perpetrators and victims, we found it necessary to see if it was an accurate risk assessment measure to be used within this unique population. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's obviously a lot to unpack there when we talk about risk factors for higher rates of violence in Indigenous populations, whether that be as perpetrators or victims. That's something that we cannot fully unpack within the span of a 20 to 30 minute podcast episode. But I did want to talk about how, so it's so commonly reported that there are higher rates of violence in Indigenous populations, but I think it's always left out of the conversation kind of where this is stemming from. Can you talk a bit about this based on the work you did for this project? Since we have limited time, I'll try and condense it. So as we know, Indigenous people are overrepresented in the justice system. Indigenous women and girls are at a higher risk for IPA as well as victims of extreme forms of violence. Mm -hmm. Colonization has had a devastating impact on the lives and social structures of Indigenous people, which continues today. Mm -hmm. 
the impact of colonization, residential schools and work camps has trickled down through five to seven generations and has contributed to higher rates of violence. It's posited that higher rates of violence are also due to the impact of economic, social and cultural insecurities that have stemmed from the history of assimilation and exclusion. The Roman Catholic and Protestant churches and the Canadian government established residential schools which prohibited their spiritual practices. It incarcerated their spiritual leaders. It confiscated spiritual objects. Children were separated from their parents in an attempt to break their link to their culture and their identity. And this all led to culture erosion, loss of language, lack of parenting skills, unhealthy intimate relationships, family breakdowns, and that's been ongoing. So that's a brief history. Thank you for explaining all that. I just wanted to make sure that we were acknowledging that and not just saying like, yeah, there's higher rates of violence and moving on. Like there are reasons for that. And I think it is very important to acknowledge that where where this is all coming from. Okay, but now let's get into the bulk of your research. First, how did you go about assessing the tool? Well, I worked in conjunction with the RCMP and F Division, which is Saskatchewan. And... I selected 300 occurrence files over six different detachment areas in treaties eight and 10, which are located in Northern Saskatchewan. And I chose 50 participants per detachment, starting with the smallest detachment area and ending with the largest detachment area. The detachment areas were requested by the RCMP as being problem areas for them. And they wanted them included in the study. And we didn't, and never will reveal which detachment areas were used. So we went back, our date range went from 2015 to 2020. And I started with occurrences that happened in 2015 and worked backwards to avoid duplicates. So my criteria was the perpetrator had to be male. He had to be an adult. So 18 years or older. The index intimate partner abuse offense had to result in charges. So not just a call and a complaint was made and nothing happened. They actually had to be charged with the offense and they had to have lived with or is living with the victim. So it had to be either an ex domestic partner or a current domestic partner. Okay. And was there a reason you decided to use males specifically? Just for ease of sample size. Cause that's like 300 is quite a, is quite a lot. And our focus for this study was the population, not the gender. So then we ran the ODERA using police systems. So PROSE, which is the police reporting occurrence system, and CPIC, which is the Canadian Police Information Centre. And we categorized recidivism into four categories. IPA, so intimate partner recidivism, violent recidivism, nonviolent recidivism, and then all recidivism in general. All right. And what did you find? We found that our sample yielded a higher percentage of cases in the higher risk bands of five or six, or I guess I should back up here. So the ODERA has different risk bands. There's 13 items. And for example, say there were threats involved. Well, that's a one. And if there were no threats involved, it's a zero. And then you add all the numbers up to get your total score. So you can have a lowest score of zero and a highest score of 13. So the lower your score, the lower your risk. 
and it's separated into risk bands. So one and two, three and four, five and six, seven and eight, or, and then, or well, seven to 13. So our sample yielded a higher percentage of cases in the higher risk bands of five or six and seven to 13 than the norm. And that was about three quarters of our sample, which means that there's high rates and then high recidivism rates on 4.70 mean average over 4.70 years was 44% of the participants committed another IPA offense, 60% committed another general violence offense, 65.7% committed another nonviolent offense, and 73% of our sample committed any new offense. So the recidivism rates were extremely high. And so you were assessing the predictive ability of this in Indigenous samples. So what does all of that say about what the predictive properties are for that population? Well, recidivism is extremely high in that population. So our biggest find was that the ODERA scores were positively correlated with age at the time of the IPA index offense, which in turn was significantly inverse related to IPV recidivism. So in plain English, younger men had higher rates of recidivism in general, but older men had higher ODERA scores. So when controlling for the offender's age at the time of the incident that we're assessing, the predictive accuracy increased slightly for all recidivism outcomes. So like we know in general from research that recidivism decreases with age, like lots of offenders age out of the system. Like the older you get, the less likely you are to commit another crime. But the ODERA is based on a lot of historical data, like their previous criminal history, their previous convictions. So older men have had more time to get a higher score, where younger men haven't had as much time, so they have a lower score, but they have more time to commit another offense is what we found. So when you control for age, it makes it more accurate. So, and how did the assessment tool compare to when it is used with a white population? If you looked at that. In general, the biggest find was that, I mean, our, our accuracy was similar. It wasn't that much different, but we just found that ours had many more cases, the big difference was we had higher risk bands than with the white white population, basically. Okay, so all of that to say, is this tool appropriate to use with Indigenous populations? Is there a better tool that could be used that you're aware of? I think it's really important to remember what the tool was designed to do when we're talking about this, and that's to aid frontline police officers. So especially in rural communities, police officers have to wear many hats. They aren't just going out and arresting people. They have to get victims help, work in collaboration with victim services, do patrol. They're also, when they arrest someone, they have to decide, okay, are we releasing this person tonight or are we remanding them? And that's not a decision that you can take lightly. You're taking away someone's freedom, right? And so this tool uses their systems to help them triage 
how risky it's going to be to let somebody go. If they let this person go tonight, are they going to go back to the house and commit another offense or escalate things? Is the victim going to be safe in their home? It's not a tool that's used, for example, in a correctional facility where someone's risk and placement in the correctional facility is based on that score. It's a in-time risk assessment. So I do think it's appropriate to be used at the time where it's supposed to be because it gives a member an idea of should, should I be letting this guy go tonight or should I be keeping him in here? And also intimate partner abuse calls are some of the highest risk calls a member can respond to. If they know this guy's risk or previous violent history before they get to the scene, that gives them the information they need to keep everybody, including themselves safe. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything else about this project that like I haven't asked about that you feel would be interesting to share or important to share? I mean, it was a really interesting project. It was huge for an honors thesis, though I think it would be interesting to do more projects like this based on risk assessment tools that actually take individual circumstances into account. Like the ODERA does not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take, you know, colonization or your past life history or any of those aspects into account. It's very general. It would be nice to have a more thorough and effective tool for frontline members to use. I mean, they're not trained mental health professionals and nor should they be. So, well, and I think that that's kind of like, it's like a give and take because while it would be really great to have all of that extra information to make better decisions, I imagine a lot of the times when like police are going into these situations, it's not as easy to ask these questions and kind of get through like a larger questionnaire. So it's like kind of a balancing act, I would think. Well, and you have to remember police officers responding to calls in Northern Saskatchewan is very different than in a large urban center. Their detachment areas are huge. They could get the call and it might take them 30 minutes to drive there. So by then, how far has it escalated? Right. It's a very different environment. And I think giving them the tools they need to make everybody safe is important. When they're doing this assessment, is it like when they get the call, like, is it usually on the phone? Is it by the time they get there or when exactly is this being used? This assessment would be done after they've contained the situation. Like, obviously they're going to run the people involved and know what they're walking into. But I think this assessment would be used more after they've spoken to the victim and they know what happened because you need the victim's perspective to answer some of the questions. This is more of a, are we releasing them into the community or no? That makes sense. For our final closing question, when it comes to risk assessment, particularly with Indigenous samples, if you were to give a service provider, whether that would be a police officer or a psychologist, one practice to work toward in the long term and one simple thing that they could begin implementing today, based on your knowledge in this area, what would it be? I think, I mean, I could go on for ever about where I think this area is wrong. But uh, I think one thing we really need to consider is like just my past work history and my research and all that stuff is that these offenders are assessed for risk. They're put into a risk category. And then it feels like, especially with 
indigenous offenders, they're just kind of, well, here's your programming, either do it and succeed and maybe you can, we'll change your risk category. I think it's really important or future research should be focusing on how to actually rehabilitate these offenders because recidivism is extremely high and it's not going to stop until their risk levels are assessed or changed. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think just in like some of the clinical experience I've had, you know, you get a case and it's just like everybody has a label of this is their diagnosis. This is their problem. This is their history. And it's kind of laid out as like, now fix it. But in doing that, you kind of, you lose the person, the actual history of what got them there within all that. And so I think exactly what you're saying, you know, like, even if somebody has high risk, we have to take that into consideration, but not make that their entire being as a human, you know? Yeah, exactly. And what works for one person may not work for another. Like the generalized programming and rehabilitation programming that's offered may not work for. Obviously, there's something that needs to change, perhaps more culturally appropriate programming. Oh, I'm sure that would that would have incredible implications. (laughs) Just off the top of my head. Just off the top of my head. Just one small step. (laughs) And I also think things in the justice system need to change as well. Because I saw lots of repeat when I was going through my, finding my samples. It was, you know, you'd come across the same person with the same victim over and over and over and over again. Do you have any thoughts about what within the justice system could change? I think that... I know they've made changes for domestic violence cases. There's now domestic violence court. I just think they need to take a look at how domestic violent cases are being handled and especially domestic violence offenders are being handled in the rehabilitation because there's something broken there that they keep seeing the same people back over and over and over again. Oh, well, it's such a tough topic and you know, I think it's a theme throughout the podcast is in that, you know, there's podcast is evidence that there's work being done. There's research being done to help these areas and these populations. But, uh, you know, research only goes so far. We need like community stakeholders and service providers and stuff to be implementing that. And, you know, that's on part of researchers to disseminate that knowledge. But yeah, one step at a time. Well, thank you so much, Jen. It was so great having you on. Thank you for talking about your research. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Resolving Violence. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and their research or Resolve Saskatchewan, please check the show notes below. And if what you listened to today was helpful, please consider sharing it with colleagues, and on social media so we can work collectively to resolve violence. Thanks again. Until next time.